Come follow me, the Savior said. Then let us in, his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, Season 2. This is a weekly podcast that follows my study of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each week, I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found online at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more fun, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Savior Said. Please note, episodes of The Savior Said are not meant to replace your Come Follow Me experience, but to supplement your own personal study of the scriptures. Hey guys, welcome back to The Savior Said. This is the assignment for January 20 through 26th. It's 1 Nephi 11 through 15. It's called Armed with the Righteousness and the Power of God. And I talked a little bit, I think, last episode about Nephi 11. I didn't realize that we were not going into it last episode, so I apologize for that. But we'll talk a little bit more about it. We've got all kinds of good stuff coming up in this episode. Okay, so looking at the introduction, it starts off when it says, When God has a monumental work for his prophet to do, He often gives that prophet a monumental vision that helps him understand God's purposes for his children. Moses saw a vision of this earth and the inhabitants thereof and also the heavens. The apostle John saw the history of the world and the Savior's second coming. Joseph Smith saw the father and the son. Lehi saw a vision that portrayed the journey we must take towards the Savior and his love. As recorded in 1 Nephi 11-14, Nephi saw the ministry of the Savior the future of Lehi's posterity in the promised land, and the latter-day destiny of God's work. This vision helped to prepare Nephi for the work that lay ahead of him. All right, so pause. So I think a lot of times when we see visionaries, prophets, you know, leaders, people who are going to accomplish something good and wonderful for the Lord— they have kind of a mountaintop experience, or at least a symbolic mountaintop experience, meaning that they're brought closer to the Lord. And Nephi has something very similar happen to him in 1 Nephi chapter 11, verse 1, and it's talking about he wanted to know more about these things, and it says, Yea, and I was caught up in the Spirit of the Lord into an exceedingly high mountain, which I had never before seen, and upon which I had never before set my foot. Okay, so where was Nephi and where was this mountain? Well, you know, it may not have even been a real mountain. This may have been just symbolic of Nephi being lifted up to a new position where he's able to see things he had never seen before. You know, he's got this great overarching vision of world history. I mean, you know, you think about you go up on top of a mountain and you can see for like miles around, like there's a spot in um, Chattanooga that you can go up on top of this mountain. You can see like five states in every direction, right? So he was able to see like, you know, miles and miles and miles of history all at once from the point where he was. So that's kind of like his mountaintop experience, I think, that he's having there. So just like God prepared these other prophets, even his father Lehi, before he had a big miraculous kind of task for them, Nephi is having kind of a similar tutelage, a similar experience, a similar tour of history, and kind of being given the promise that it's all going to be okay. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. It's going to be okay. And this is how it's going to be okay. And kind of reassuring him before he goes through the desert and goes through all the craziness that's coming his way. Now, Come Follow Me says, this vision helped prepare Nephi for the work that lay ahead of him. And it can also prepare you. For God has a work for you to do in his kingdom. You are among the saints of the church of the Lamb that Nephi saw. He saw you guys, right? He saw me. He saw all of us. 
who were scattered upon the face of the earth, and they were armed with righteousness and with the power of God in great glory. And that is our purpose, then, is to take what Nephi has taught us, to take what we learn from the scriptures and what we know of Jesus Christ and take it to the rest of the world, right? Okay, jumping on into the first section. It's First Nephi 11. God sent Jesus Christ as an expression of his love. And we talked about this a little bit last week with the condescension of God, because um, I t- touched on that a little bit. But I want to go back in and talk about it a little bit more. If we look in First Nephi chapter 11, it actually talks about behold the condescension of God twice. And the first time is in chapter or in verse 16, where he said, And he said unto me, Knowest thou the condescension of God? And I told him, I know God loves his children. Nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things. And then Nephi is shown, you know, Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's bearing a child in her arms. And they talk about the love of Christ to come to earth. So that is the first example that we have of the condescension of God, or at least part of the Godhead, coming down in the form of Jesus Christ and taking on the human form. And so Nephi's learning how that human form is going to be taken upon Jesus Christ, right? So he's learning about Mary. He's learning about the birth. That's the first condescension of God that we, we talk about here first, okay? Then in 26, so 10 verses later, again, an angel says, look and behold the condescension of God, all right? And if we look, the next couple of verses talk about Christ's ministry. So not just that he was here on earth, but his ministry. So how does Christ descend below all things? How does he condescend, right? And so we can actually see that in verse 33, And it says, And I, Nephi, saw that he was lifted up upon the cross and slain for the sins of the world. And after he was slain, I saw the multitudes of the earth, that they were gathered together to fight against the apostles of the Lamb. And thus were the twelve called by the angel of the Lord. So we have Christ, who is the literal representative of God the Father, the literal Son of God the Father here on earth. And he's condescended to come down to earth. And then he's here on earth. He's teaching the people. He's spreading his gospel message. And he basically gets trampled on. I mean, he took our sins upon him. He didn't deserve any of that. But he condescended below his station. He condescended below what he deserved to take on what we did so that we can have a life with our Heavenly Father that we don't deserve. You know, we don't deserve to return to our Heavenly Father because all of us sin and we all fall short of the glory of God. But Christ condescended to take upon those sins so that we can ascend or go back up to our Heavenly Father above one day. And so I saw those two different instances there in chapter 11. I thought it was interesting to kind of contrast the two. That one talks about Christ's like humanity and come, coming to earth. And then the other one talks about him using that humanity to bring us back up to God. So I saw those two two spots there that I thought were interesting to share with you. Um, going back to come follow me, it says to help Nephi understand the meaning of the tree and his father had seen, an angel showed him the son of the eternal father. This led Nephi to conclude that the tree represents the love of God. But the vision wasn't over yet. As you ponder and read First Nephi 11, what do you find that helps you understand why Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of God's love? All right, well, let's take a look in chapter 11. Um, it starts out, Nephi is talking, he's talking to the angel. Okay, and in 21, the angel said unto me, Behold the Lamb of God, yea, even the Son of the Eternal Father. Knowest thou the meaning of the tree which thy father saw? And in 22, Nephi answers him and says, Yea, it is the love of God, which sheddeth itself abroad in the hearts of the children of men. Wherefore, it is the most desirable above all things. Okay. So that phrase, sheddeth itself abroad, was interesting to me. I started thinking about, what is shedding? 
I mean, you know, I think about my dog and my cat when they shed. Um, they definitely shed their fur abroad in my house. Like they scatter it liberally all over the place. It's constantly everywhere. It clings to all my clothes. But hey, isn't that the same way that Christ's love is with us? It's everywhere we go. It's on everything we do. It clings to us constantly. Okay, okay, so I can I can get behind this shedding right here. You know, this is good shedding versus like what my cat and dog do. That's bad shedding. But this is good shedding. And it sheddeth itself abroad in the hearts of the children of men. So it's sprinkling itself abroad in the hearts of the children of men. And it's the most desirable above all things. Now, how is it sprinkled abroad among the children of men? Well, if we look later on, we can look starting in 27, and the angel's showing him some other stuff. And he says, I beheld the Redeemer of the world of whom my father had spoken. And remember, Lehi said those beautiful things about the Redeemer of the world who should come. And he talks about John the Baptist. And the Lamb of God went forth and was baptized of him. After he was baptized, I beheld the heavens open, and the Holy Ghost came down out of the heaven and abode with him in the form of a dove. And I beheld that he ministered unto the people in power and great glory. Now, that ha- that's what happened in the New Testament, like, you know, back, you know, in Israel and in Judea, in that area, he ministered to the people there, but he still ministers to us daily, on a daily basis, through his grace and his goodness and his mercy. He's with us anytime that we sin or we fall short of the perfection that God expects of us, we can turn to him and he ministers to us and he helps us become better than we were before. He helps repair that sin when we repent, right? And so he helps us be stronger than we could otherwise. So he's constantly ministering to us. And then we go into 31 and it says, I looked and I beheld the Lamb of God going forth among the children of men. And I beheld multitudes of people who were sick and who were afflicted with all manners of diseases and with devils and unclean spirits. And the angel spake and showed all these things unto me. And they were healed by the power of the Lamb of God, and the devils and the unclean spirits were cast out. Now, they were healed by the power of the Lamb of God. That's still true for us. It's not just, you know, the people that, children of Israel that were there in Judea. It's true for us as well here 2,000 years later. We are still healed by the power of the Lamb of God. And, you know, going back to the whole fruit thing, you know, I, I think of this new trend that now that we have in like, holistic wellness as food, as medicine, food can heal. You know, what you eat can either make you sicker or can make you whole and help you be healthy. Like that whole idea of eating well and eating with food as medicine. And so then I go and I see the fruit of the tree that Lehi's talking about. And it is the ultimate medicine for the soul, right? This fruit is the love of God. It's the savior. And so when we partake of that fruit, we are just like in verse 31, We are being healed by the power of the Lamb of God. And the devils and the unclean spirits were cast out. Anything wicked or unclean is cast out of us by the love of our Savior, you know, and his great sacrifice. So that's kind of what I saw as Nephi seeing this vision. That's kind of what it made me think of. All right. And then it talks about the other symbols in Lehi's dream. And I think we talked about them a lot last time. So I'm going to kind of skip over that. We're going to talk a little bit about some other things that Nephi saw. Okay. So the next section in Come Follow Me It says, the Lord prepared the way for the restoration. Nephi would never live to witness much of what he saw in his vision. Why do you think it was valuable for Nephi to know these things? And why is it valuable for you to know these things? What I see is one of the ways that God works with us, not just Nephi, not just prophets of old, but he works with us the very same way today, is he gives us promises. And then when we go through hard stuff, if we can hold to those promises 
That helps get us through those really hard times. It gives us hope. And hope can be incredibly powerful. Um, If you've ever seen someone who's been in a situation where they are literally hopeless, where they've lost all hope, I mean, that is probably one of the deepest despairs and depressions that you can get. Hope can do amazing things. People who have been in really trying situations, as long as they have hope that it's going to get better, then they can get through stuff. And those promises of God, when we have faith in them, they give us hope and faith, and the knowledge that things will get better. And so I have to think Nephi, as he's sitting here and he's seeing this like whole, you know, overview of human history, he knows his posterity is going to die out. Like he knows that, you know, his great, 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 great times a hundred grandchildren are going to die out. Like there, his line is going to end, right? And except for those who have mixed in with the lines of his brethren. It had to probably be very frustrating for Nephi, I think, to sit there and be like, Lord, I'm the one choosing the right. Why are my great-great-grandchildren going to be the ones that get wiped out? Why is it not Laman and Lemuel's? Like, they're the knotheads that can never choose the right. Like, why do their kids get to live? You know, and so I could see him being kind of like really sad as he goes through and he sees especially how they're going to be slaughtered um, when we see Columbus and stuff and some of the... um you know, some of the colonization that takes place over the course of human history. And so there's going to be hard stuff, both in the the vision that he sees and also in Nephi's own life as he continues on with Laman and Lemuel, the whiners, and all of that in the desert and going across the seas and all that stuff. It's not going to end. Like they're going to keep being awful, but he can hold on to the promises of what he knows is coming and that can help get him through some of the more awful stuff. I don't know if that makes sense. But then why is it valuable for us to know these things? Because we know that in the end, the good guys win. And it also kind of shows us some of the behind the scenes action that happened to help bring the restoration about. Like, did you guys ever watch that show on VH1? Um, I mean, it was like probably 10 plus years ago that they had it on, but it was called Behind the Music. And so it would be like MC Hammer and it would go like behind the music, like what was happening in MC Hammer's life at this time that he wrote, you can't touch this. And this is what inspired it. And what was behind, you know, the hammer time thing and, you know, his poofy pants. And, you know, it gives you like all the background details of like what was going on in the different musicians' lives and their careers and stuff like that. And I think Nephi is getting a behind-the-music kind of tour a little bit of human history. Like he's starting to see, you know, the different pieces that the Lord is moving into place, the chess game that he's playing to make sure that the gospel is restored. And I think that's really cool. I actually... One of the things I say all the time to myself is when I get to the other side, after this life, I'm going to sit down with Heavenly Father and say, okay, I want to see the behind the scenes version of my life. Like, I want to see how you did this. Like, you know, what Nephi's seeing where, you know, you move the spirit of the explorer upon the waters and things like that. I want to see how you did that with my life. All the different spots where things happened, like what were the chess pieces that were moving into place at that point? So Heavenly Father, at some point, I want to behind the scenes or behind the music on my life. Just FYI. Um, Okay, so we were seeing a little bit about that with human history. So here are some of the events that Nephi saw, some of the chess pieces being moved into place. He saw the future of his people, and this is in chapter 12. And this is the thing that I think has to be just so, like, depressing for Nephi. So much like, I think I would be distraught if I saw it. You know, he sees the land of promise, the righteousness, the iniquity, and the downfall of his future people, right? He sees the coming of the Lamb of God, then who will redeem them? 
And we see that in verse 11. And it says, And I looked and beheld three generations pass away in righteousness. This is after Christ came to visit the Americas. And their garments were white, even like unto the Lamb of God. And the angel said unto me, These are made white in the blood of the Lamb because of their faith in him. And so, you know, that had to do Nephite's heart some good. Like he had to be like, okay, so they are good. <laughs> Not everything is horrible. Like there's some good light parts in this, right? And But then it goes on. And we get to 21 and it says, I saw them gather together in multitudes and I saw the wars and the rumor of wars among them. And in wars and rumors of wars, I saw many generations pass away. And the angel said unto me, behold, these shall dwindle in unbelief. And it came to pass that I beheld that they had dwindled in unbelief and become a dark and loathsome and filthy people full of idleness and all manner of abominations. So why would it be valuable for Nephi to know this? Why would it be valuable for him to know that his line eventually gets wiped out? Well, I think it places even greater emphasis on Christ and the necessity of Christ. But then it also shows, I think, the necessity of God bringing the gospel back. You know, this is the apostasy in the Americas versus the apostasy that was happening, you know, over in Jerusalem at the same time where, you know, Christ's gospel is dying out. This is the very similar apostasy that's happening in the Americas. So so next up, we see the colonizing of the Americas and the American Revolution. And we see this in chapter 13, starting in 12 and going all the way through 19, right? And so just real quick, I want to read you some of the highlights from this, okay? I looked and beheld a man among the Gentiles who was separated from the seed of my brethren by many waters. So obviously we're talking about Columbus here. And I beheld the spirit of God that it came down and wrought upon the man and he went forth upon the many waters even unto the seed of my brethren who are in the promised land. Obviously, this is Christopher Columbus. We're going to talk more about him in just a minute. But if we skip on down, okay, we're going to see in 15, I beheld the spirit of the Lord that it was upon the Gentiles and they did prosper and obtain the land for their inheritance. And I beheld that they were white and exceedingly fair and beautiful like unto my people before they were slain. Okay, so I want to pause there because I think that this is an probably an important thing to point out. I know that when used in an improper context, the word white can be cause for racism. It can cause some, you know, maybe false thinking about race and things like that. So I want to set the record straight. I don't think that Nephi was literally talking about the color of their skin. I think what Nephi was talking about when he says that they were white, I think he was talking about their purity. Okay. And like he says, like unto my people before they were slain, they were fair and beautiful and pure like my people were before they were slain. So, you know, they chose the right. They chose to have religious freedom. And that's why they came to America. You know, they wanted to get away from the corruption and things like that in Europe. And they came to America. I don't know. That's gospel according to Lexi. I mean, you don't have to subscribe to that. You can choose to have your own thoughts about it. But, you know, and he talks about the dark and loathsome people And then he talks about being white and fair like his people were. So I see it more as not necessarily a color of skin, but I see it more as symbolic of like the status of their righteousness, I guess, if you could say. So, I mean, they could be the exact same color. It's just the status of like whatever purity that they were in at the time. So I wanted to point that out because I think that's important. All right. So then he goes on to see the Revolutionary War. And so we see in 17, and I beheld that their mother Gentiles were gathered together upon the waters and upon the land also to battle them. And I beheld the power of God was with them and also that the wrath of God was upon all those that were gathered together against them to battle. 
And I, Nephi, beheld that the Gentiles that had gone out of captivity were delivered by the power of God out of the hands of all other nations. And we can see that when we go back and we look at history, even from a secular point of view, that the Americans winning the Revolutionary War made no sense. Like there's no way that this ragtag team of farmers and, you know, just regular everyday Joes would be able to stand up against this trained super force, like the the best Navy in the world, right? And they still were able to come out on top. It's why they say the world turned upside down because this made no sense whatsoever. But there were times over and over again, and you can go out and research this, and um, there's all kinds of different commentaries on how God influenced the Revolutionary War. But it was very obvious that there were some supernatural powers kind of backing the Americans, right, during the Revolutionary War. And so that's kind of what he's seeing there, is he's seeing God strengthening this people who have come and are able to create a foundation for the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ after it's died out on the earth. So he's able to see like, hey, there's going to be hope and God's going to make it happen. So I think that that would be why it's important for Nephi to know that. Why it's important for us to know that is so that we can be so grateful for the hand of the Lord that was in our American history that helped it to come to pass. Um, I think even, you know, the hand of the Lord that was over our founding fathers. You know, when I was in high school, it was the first time I actually sat down and read any of like the Federalist Papers or at Thomas Paine and, you know, all the philosophy that was kind of going on at the time. And, you know, I remember mentioning to my mom, like, this is sacred. Like the thoughts that the, these guys were having were sacred. And I told her it was outside of reading the scriptures, it was probably the closest I'd ever come to reading a sacred text that wasn't scripture. And the founding fathers in the Federalist Papers specifically, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the Federalist Papers, like so much so that I went after I graduated from high school, my AP government class, I went and bought the textbook because I loved it so much. And I loved all the primary resources in there um, because I can feel God in them. And I can feel that natural just love of man and freedom, that natural love of freedom and of agency and being able to use your agency for the right and being able to use your agency for good, but yet still having checks and balances on those who choose not to use their agency for good. You know, so I mean, I just saw lots of God um, in the Federalist Papers and in lots of the founding documents. So um, it's always something I've been, you know, really partial to. I love the American revolutionary history and specifically the documents that surrounded it. So um Yeah, that's my Revolutionary War spiel. Okay, here we go. So the next thing that Nephi saw was the Great Apostasy. And this is in chapter 13, 20 through 29. Okay, so this is where we're going to start seeing like the Great Abominable Church. We're going to talk more about that in the next section of Come Follow Me. So I'm not going to delve too deeply into it here. Just know that it's not actually a church, like specifically a church. It's like a church of belief. Uh, we're going to talk about it in a minute. Just, just hold hold on to that thought. Put a pin in it. All right. And then the restoration of the gospel, which is like the great promise and hope. And that's in 32 through 42. And we see in 33, it says, Wherefore, saith the Lamb of God, I will be merciful unto the Gentiles, unto the visiting of the remnant of the house of Israel with great judgment. And it came to pass the angel of the Lord spake unto me, saying, Behold, saith the Lamb of God, that after I have visited the remnant of the house of Israel, and this remnant of whom I speak is the seed of thy father, wherefore... After I had visited them in judgment and smitten them by the hand of the Gentiles, and after the Gentiles do stumble exceedingly because of the most plain and precious parts of the gospel of the Lamb, which have been kept back by the abominable church. Okay, going on, da-da-da-da-da. 
I will manifest myself unto thy seed, and they shall write many things which I shall minister unto them, which shall be plain and precious. And after thy seed shall be destroyed and dwindle in unbelief, then these things shall be hid up to come forth unto the Gentiles by the gift and power of the Lamb. And in them shall be written written my gospel, saith the Lamb, and my rock and my salvation. And blessed are they who shall seek to bring forth my Zion at that day, for they shall have the gift and the power of the Holy Ghost. And guys, I don't know, like I'm reading this and I'm getting goosebumps because I'm like the Spirit's testifying to me that those who do bring this gospel forth had the gift and power of the Holy Ghost with them. What's interesting to me here, I mean, I guess this is important for Nephi to know because again, you need when you know the ending from the beginning, you're like, okay, I've got some hope that this is all going to turn out, okay? But why is it important for us? I think what's interesting is that we get the Bible first. The Bible is, you know, our first source of scripture, and that's to the Jews, right? So the Jews get the gospel first. Well, then they reject Christ, right? And so then it goes to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles restore it to the earth. They add more to it that has been taken out, you know, the plain and precious parts that were removed. They add more to it, and then they can bring it back to the Jews and convince the Jews to come back to Christ, Right. And so I think it's interesting because it goes Jews to Gentiles and then back to the Jews again. It all cycles around. So to me, I don't know. I don't know that there's like specifically a value there. I just think it's an interesting kind of echo between where the gospel showed up and where it goes. All right. So let's go to the next section. What is the great and abominable church that Nephi saw? Okay. I want to talk about this. Elder Dallin H. Oaks explains that the great and abominable church described by Nephi represents any philosophy or organization that opposes belief in God. And the captivity into which this church seeks to bring the saints will not so much be physical confinement as the captivity of false ideas. Okay, I think this is so important to point out that this is not an organization, a specific organization. Like I know over the course of time, I've heard people say, oh, it's this church or oh, it's this church. No, think of a church. Okay, so a church is, you know, of course we have the church building, but a church is also a group of people who've gathered together and believe the same way. So if we have the church of the devil, it's people who have gathered together and placed the devil or, you know, wickedness or sin that placed that above whatever is good and holy and pure, right? Whereas, you know, the church of Christ we place what's good and holy and pure above that which is sin and evil and wickedness, right? So it just talks about like where are their values placed, basically. So those who are in the church of the devil, let's go in and read 1 Nephi 13. Let's do 26. And it says, Thou seest the formation of that great and abominable church, which is most abominable above all other churches. For behold, they have taken away from the gospel of the Lamb many parts which are plain and most precious, and also many covenants of the Lord have they taken away. And all this they have done that they might pervert the right ways of the Lord, and they might blind the eyes and harden the hearts of the children of men. Wherefore, thou seest that after the book has gone forth through the hands of the great and abominable church, that there are many plain and precious things taken away from the book, which is the book of the Lamb of God. All right, so I know I've heard people talk about that this is the Catholic church because of the way that you know, the Bible is translated and things like that. But no, I think honest and truly, we owe those monks and the people there in that church that brought the Bible through those dark ages. Like, I'm really actually very grateful for them. I know that we lost some really important stuff along the way. And I know I joke a lot about like the monks barfing on the translations, but I think there were some things that were like specifically cut out by church leaders. I also think that there were some things that were just accidentally lost along the way. But we still have some really beautiful truths that made it all the way through. So I'm very grateful for the sacrifice that they made 
all the people who made to stand up to bring that translation of what we do have currently, the truth that we do have, to bring that through those dark ages to what we have now. That doesn't mean that it's like whole. It's still not whole. Like there's still stuff that's been missing. And we can even see that when we went to our Come Follow Me study this past year. I remember there's the part where it talks about the baptism for the dead in the New Testament and listening to some of the other New Testament commentaries that were not of our faith, trying to make sense of what that meant. Like, did they go and they like unbury the dead, like baptize the bones? Or did they talk about maybe this is symbolic, like people were dead and so they're being baptized into life again, you know, and they had no idea what the baptisms of the dead that Paul was referring to, what that just didn't make sense to them. You know, they didn't know because it had been cut out the plain and precious truths, the plain and precious covenants and ordinances, it had been cut out or lost along the way somewhere. So I'm grateful to those who sacrificed and who were able to bring the truths that we do have through that dark time, but I do recognize that there were things cut out. Okay, so let's talk some more about this great and abominable church because I've had I've had several thoughts this week, okay? So going into 1 Nephi 14, and we look at verse 9, and it says, Look and behold that great and abominable church, which is the mother of abominations, whose founder is the devil. And he said unto me, Behold, there are saved two churches only. There is one the church of the Lamb of God, and the other is the church of the devil. Wherefore, whoso belongeth not to the church of the Lamb of God belongeth the great church, which is the mother of abominations, and she is the whore of all the earth. Okay, so that's some strong language there, right? <laughs> um one of the things that these verses say to me, the first thing is, is that the gospel is black and white, like very black and white. When you get right down to it, either you are in the church of God or you are in the church of the devil. And I'm not saying that that's like our church versus like the rest of the world, because I think there are really good people out there who are living their lives to the best of their ability that aren't members of our church. Maybe they've only got like five puzzle pieces and we've got the eight puzzle pieces and, you know, so we just got a little bit more of the puzzle but they are still following Christ. They're going after Christ. And I believe that they are in the right church, right? Then there are those out there that specifically, and there might even be members of our church who are specifically choosing other things over Christ, right? And so are they really in the church of the lamb or are they really in the church of the devil? It's all about what do you place as priority in your life? And that's where it puts you into the church. And again, it's not like, I I hate even like the word church being used here because I don't necessarily think that it's like a church is in like a congregation and a body. I think it's a whole philosophy system. You know, what priorities do you place in your life? What do you place your priorities on? What's your belief system for your life? What do you follow in your life? Like that's really what it's talking about. Do you follow, you know, the Lamb of God? Do you follow Jesus Christ? Is that your priority? Or is it other stuff? Is it money? Maybe money. Is it power? there may be power, right? Is it fame? Is it things? Like, are you obsessed with cars and stuff instead of of like, you know, what you need to be focusing on? You know, all those different times. And I think at different times in our lives, we all are a member of that church of the devil whenever we place something above our savior and above our ability to focus on him and place him as our priority in our lives. So I know it's, I said it was really black and white and I just made it very, very gray, but, um, (laughs) At the end, at the end of all this, it's going to be black and white. Either you choose Jesus Christ or you don't, right? Like that's really what it's going going to boil down to. Okay, so let's talk about she's the whore of all the earth. So not a nice word, but if you look at what that actually means, it's someone taking something that is pure and holy and making it impure and unholy. So you have a church or a system of beliefs 
that takes things that are pure and holy and makes them impure and unholy. And that's what Nephi's talking about. And for whatever reason, he just didn't have the language to like state that out every single time. And so he used the term whore of all the earth, right? And there's another phrase in here that was interesting to me, and it's in 11. And it says, I looked and beheld the whore of all the earth, and she sat upon the waters. Okay, so waters. I think... Especially when I was younger, I used to think, I'm like, oh, that means the devil's in the water and I've got to be careful of deep water. And, you know, it caused all kinds of weird thoughts in my head. But I don't necessarily think that that's what it means. I think when he, Nephi talked about waters, I think this is symbolic here too. I think this is definitely symbolism. It made me actually think we, we just had lots and lots of rain here where I live. And there was some flooding, not anything too scary or, you know, too major drastic, but In the area I live in, there have been floods in the past that have been pretty intense, right? And so I started thinking about when there's a flood and the water comes up, you know, and let's say you've got a basement or something in your house and it starts getting filled with the flood waters. Okay, so that flood water is really, really gross. Okay, sewage has backed up and is overflowing into that flood water. You know, we're here in the South. We have snakes all over the place. There's snakes in that flood water. There's all kinds of other stuff living in the flood water. If you've had a really bad storm, you probably have dead animals in the flood water as well. There's all kinds of decomposing grossness in there. Bacteria, filth, disgusting. So whenever you have to clean up after a flood, you have to use bleach like crazy. You have to pretty much bleach everything or burn it. Like those are your two options. And after the flood waters recede, like there's snakes everywhere. I mean, it's just, it's bad, like really, really bad. So to me, what I see here is that dirty water getting into every single nook and cranny. So when you follow that, the whore of all the earth, when you follow that great and abominable church, then that wickedness from following and placing that priority on the wrong thing kind of pervades into every single nook and cranny of your life. And it leaves behind the nasty snakes and stuff like that too. So making sure that our priority is on Christ and then going to church every Sunday and taking that sacrament, which kind of realigns our target right on Christ and making sure our target is focused on Christ will help keep that nasty flood water at bay. So I liked that symbolism. And again, this is all like personal revelation, doctrine according to Lexi. You may have gotten something totally different out of this. And if you did, cool. That's the doctrine for your life. This is just why I'm telling you this is what came to my mind this week was floodwaters. Okay, so but how do we fight against this great and abominable church, right? So we can actually read in verse 12. I beheld that the church of the Lamb, who were the saints of God, were also upon all the face of the earth. So all is not lost. The church is not covered with that nasty snake water, right? And going down into 14, and it came to pass that I, Nephi, beheld the power of the Lamb of God, that it descended upon the saints of the church of the Lamb, upon the covenant people of the Lord, right? Those who are on the covenant path, stay on the covenant path. And those who were scattered upon all the face of the earth, and they were armed with righteousness and with the power of God in great glory. What a beautiful promise for those of us who keep our covenants, who you know undergo those covenants and then stay with them. Like, that's a beautiful promise to be able to have that power. So I don't want that to get overshadowed with the, you know, abominable church and the horror of all the earth and all that, all that stuff. But there's beautiful promises there to those who follow in the church of the Lamb. Okay, so the next section in Come Follow Me is, Who is the man Nephi saw whom the Spirit wrought upon to go forth upon the many waters? And it says, Nephi saw that the Holy Ghost would inspire Christopher Columbus to make his famous voyage to the Americas on March 14th, 1493. 
Columbus wrote of this voyage, These great and marvelous results are not to be attributed to any merit of mine, for that which the unaided intellect of man could not compass, the Spirit of God has granted to human exertions. For God is wont to hear the prayers of his servants who love his precepts, even to the performance of apparent impossibilities. And that is from the Encyclopedia Britannica. That's not even like, you know, a church book. That's actually from like the encyclopedia, right? So this was interesting to me. God is wont to hear the prayers of his servants who love his precepts, even to the performance of apparent impossibilities. Um, I think God gives us gifts and he gives all of us different gifts in different ways. And then he uses those gifts. He puts us in those different places like Queen Esther. Queen Esther is like my, you know, great big symbol for this of who knows whether thou has come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You know, he takes those gifts where we are. And if we let him, if we turn to him in prayer and we ask for his help, he will then expand those gifts beyond what we are physically or mentally or capably able to do on our own and create something amazing and miraculous and good out of them. You know, I love to learn. I love to talk about the scriptures. But when I started this podcast, my big fear was, you know, I'm going to run out of stuff to say. Like, I'm not going to be able to have stuff to say, you know. But I go back and I look at season one and all the stuff that we learned about and all the the ways that we, you know, delved into the scriptures and all the things that I did have to say. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, like that was not me. I know that wasn't me. Like that was the Lord pushing, you know, different talents, I guess, that I have and making it so that it would come across and maybe reach somebody who needed to hear whatever it was that I was saying that day. And I think that can happen to any single one of us. When we are striving to be in the Lord's service, he can push the buttons of the different talents in our minds and expand them and broaden them so that we can reach people in different ways. You know, people who are artists, You know, like my friend Robin that does those amazing, gorgeous hymn paintings, you know, that bring the spirit into your home. That's a great way to serve God. People who can write music or who can sing beautifully. You know, I talk all the time about the sister in my ward that has this gorgeous voice and she sings and the spirit's like absolutely there. You know, I mean, they're using those gorgeous talents, maybe even beyond what a human could do, like by themselves, but that God is with them and able to use that to bring the spirit of the Lord to others. You know, I even see this in not even necessarily people in the church, but even, you know, outside like entertainers and stuff like that. Like there will be some movies where, you know, you will just feel the spirit in it, even though it's like a Hollywood secular production. Or like we were talking about the documents of the founding, the American founding, um, that was definitely God expanding minds and capacities to think way beyond what the mortal mind could possibly do on its own. Like if you go back and you look at the some of the stuff that Alexander Hamilton was doing, I'm a little bit obsessed with Hamilton. I will tell you, um, <laughs> I love the musical Hamilton. But also before that, I, I just loved Hamilton in general. You know, like, like I said, I was a big fan of the founding. So, but if you go back and you look at some of the stuff that Hamilton did with the treasury, the department of the treasury, the way he set up a lot of like the systems and things like that, like crazy stuff. And yes, the man was definitely gifted intellectually, but I think beyond that, God was there pushing the buttons and making things happen. And he was using his human tools to do that. So when we put ourselves in the hands of a very capable God, he makes us very capable as well. Um, I guess is what I'm getting at. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whatever part of the kingdom, the vineyard that you are working in, give yourself over to God and let him make you something even better than you could possibly be on your own. Um, That's one of the things I strive to do every day, just at work and in my family. 
All right, so let's go to the next section. Actually, I'm going to skip that section about the plain and precious truths. You guys can go in and read that. We've talked a little bit about plain and precious truths, but there are some good talks that I think you really should go read, specifically the Russell M. Nelson talk, the Book of Mormon, What Would My Life Be Like Without It? I quoted it, I think, in the first episode of this season, but um, it's an amazing talk. It talks about the importance of the Book of Mormon in your life, so definitely go check that out. But I want to talk about the section after that. It says, the Lord will answer me if I asked with in faith with a soft heart. It says, have you ever felt like you weren't receiving personal revelation, that God wasn't talking to you? What counsel did Nephi give his brothers when they felt this way? And how can you apply Nephi's counsel in your life? And how can you use his counsel to help others? Well, let's look. It's in Nephi 15, 1 through 11. And the verse I specifically want to point out is 11. And it says, do you not remember the things which the Lord hath said? If you will not harden your hearts and ask me in faith, believing that ye shall receive with diligence and keeping the commandments, surely these things will be made known unto you. So what do we need to do? Number one, we need to make sure that we are asking sincerely. We're not hardening our hearts, right? We're believing we shall receive the, what, that, what we're looking for. And then we keep the commandments, right? We do what we're supposed to. Now, you know, I've made a big deal. I know the last couple episodes about my shaky testimony and the restoration And I got to the point this week where I was like, Heavenly Father, like, I'm just so struggling with this. You know, it's the weak part of my testimony. And finally, the spirit was like, just stop, stop saying that because is the restoration true? And I'm like, I had to pause for a moment. I'm like, Heavenly Father, did the restoration really happen? Like, is, was it really guided by your hand? And I just had this overwhelming sense of yes. And then I was like, but what about, what about? And it's like, no, no, Lexi, Lexi, don't worry about the particulars. Don't worry about the details. Don't let this be the one time in your life that you're actually concerned about details. But like the overall big picture, yes, it's true. It's from God. And I just got that testimony this week, that just that witness of that being from God and his hands in it. And I think specifically, that's really what I saw when I went back and I looked at Nephi's like tour de history that he kind of went through, um, was just the hands of God and the witness that it all happened the way that God wanted it to, and that God was behind it and that it was true. And it really is the restored gospel on earth. And so humbling myself to actually asking that again, you know, whereas before I'm like, I'm just going to study it out in my mind and I'm just going to like learn all this different stuff. And no, but actually going to the Lord and just be like, Heavenly Father, is it true? Is it true? And getting that just resounding response that, yes, it is true, was a beautiful experience to me. And, you know, I hadn't been like Laman and Lemuel where I was like arguing with each other, you know, and that's the thing that kills me about (laughs) this chapter is Nephi's just had this mountaintop experience, like this amazing experience. And he comes down off the mountain and what are they doing? They're fighting. Like, really guys? Like, come on, can you not just like keep your act together for like more than five seconds? Right. And so like, yeah, but I wasn't even like to that point. I was just, you know, like telling myself that I was really shaky on this and I just didn't know if I could do this. And, you know, even to the point where someone was asking me to do something at church that was based on the restoration to get ready for conference. And my initial gut reaction was, no, I can't do that. And I was like, Lexi, that is awful. That is an awful attitude to have. And that's when I really had to sit down and be like, Heavenly Father, do I believe this? Is this true? And I got the witness that, yes, it was. And so that's going to be something I just have to keep adding on. And I just keep having to, you know, confirm over and over again in my mind. And I know it is. Um, but yes, so I, I definitely, I'm like, I'm going to jump in and do that activity because I think it'll be really good for me to kind of shore up that testimony as well. So that's becoming a stronger part of my testimony now. It's not a weak part anymore. It's becoming a stronger part. And so because of the like advice that Nephi gives Laman and Lemuel that we found here in these chapters, right? Something else that I really want to point out 
is verse 5 here in chapter 15. And I want to point it out because it's Nephi talking. And Nephi is having a very human moment. And I think he's feeling the way that a lot of us feel sometimes. He says, And it came to pass, I was overcome because of my afflictions, for I considered that mine afflictions were great above all. So... (laughs) Do we ever have those moments where we're like, oh, whatever I'm going through is the worst. It's the worst thing anyone over the history of life has ever gone through. And it's like the worst thing ever. And, you know, it's really probably not the worst thing ever. But um, when you're in that moment, you're having that pity party. It feels like the worst thing ever, right? And I see this all the time with kids. Kids will come up and they'll be like, he took my purple crayon and I don't know what to do without my purple crayon. And they're like falling apart. And I'm like, dude, you will be fine. But you use the blue crayon. You don't need the purple crayon anyways. You know, just use the blue crayon. You'll be fine. But it's not the same, right? I think sometimes when we have our little pity parties and our come aparts, you know, Heavenly Father is kind of like, It'll be okay. Like, it totally will be okay. Use the blue crayon. You will be fine. Right? But in our minds, it's like the end of the world. So that helped me to keep some things in perspective as well. But not to say that when we're going through a hard time, if it feels hard, it's still hard to us. And Heavenly Father doesn't make light of that either. He's also there. He was there with Nephi. And he's there with us whenever we are going through something hard. Um, And just because it's not the hardest thing that anyone in the history of the world has ever gone through doesn't mean that it's not hard for you. I think I see that sometimes where people are like, well, at least, you know, you're able to do this, or at least this isn't, you know, you don't have it as bad as this person. Well, I'm really sorry that that person has it so bad, but that doesn't make what I'm going through any better to know that somebody else has it worse, right? So please don't ever tell somebody that. At least you're not. Don't, don't do that because that doesn't help. That was like a total rabbit trail. Sorry, guys. But Nephi saying, I considered mine afflictions were great above all. Um, that they were the worst thing that had ever happened in the history of humankind. It says in verse 6, after I had received strength. So Nephi did go to the Lord and he said, you know, I mean, he definitely had something to complain about. He'd just seen the destruction of his people. Um, and that had to be really, really depressing. He saw some really great and wonderful stuff too, but that had to be like a really low down moment for him. Um, he said, after I had received strength, he went to the Lord and said, Lord, uh, you know, so-and-so took my purple crayon. What do I do? And the Lord said, you know, here's the blue crayon. You're fine. Right. And he was able to receive strength from, from the Lord so that he can go and deal with his knothead brothers. And of course they're fighting. And I'm like, guys, why are you fighting over the doctrine of God? Like you're not even following it. Like there's no reason for you to even be fighting over this. It's not like you believe it anyways. Like, why are you fighting? I think honest and truly because they were bored and they just wanted something to fight about. Like that would be my guess. Because even after they get their answers, like it's not really like what they're happy about. I don't know. Nephi kind of has to go off on him for a little bit and do not remember. Do you not remember? Do you not remember? How can you do this? How can you not keep the commandments of the Lord? How is this so hard for you? And he kind of lets them have it. And then we see in verse 20, and it came to pass that I did speak many words unto my brethren and they were pacified and did humble themselves before the Lord. What? Like they're still reachable. They're not like so hardened. Like that's great news for Laman and Lemuel. They actually were pacified. And then they actually start to respectfully ask him questions about the vision and he's able to answer them. So Laman and Lemuel actually had a good guy moment here. Like let's give them mad props for doing that. Okay. Um, they did have to be kind of like beaten into submission verbally by Nephi, but they were definitely good. Um, and so they, they were asking some really good questions and they got some really good answers because of that. 
So I think, you know, again, it's easy, I think, to put Nephi into like the always good guy and Laman Lemuel always bad guy category, whereas they're human. They have both sides to them. And so this was a side where we actually got to see Laman and Lemuel kind of have a good moment. But we also had got to see Nephi kind of have like a pity party. And he's human, too. He's not just a superhero. He has moments where he feels weak and he needs his Heavenly Father's strength just as much as any one of us do. So um, I like those human moments. You know, guys know that those are like my favorite moments in the scriptures. So I'm glad that that was there this week. All right. And I think with that, with that human moment of Nephi, we are going to go ahead and close out this episode. So y'all have a fabulous week and I will see you here next time. Bye y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. You can also find me on Instagram. Comments or questions? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.